Thank you, Ethan. I appreciate that. And thank you, church, for singing. I will say, I think my voice is getting better, but I can't sing yet, and I miss it so much. I can mouth the words, but I can't sing yet, and I hate it. I hate it. I don't sing with the radio. I don't even listen to music on the radio. But I, I miss church music. I miss being able to sing with you guys. So thank you for the music today. And thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for answering the call to be with God's people this morning. We are grateful that you are here. Uh, I'm looking forward to the potluck at the end of the month. Do you ever think... Google is just messing with you. I mean, it's just telling you what you want to hear. Because I was, I was looking up, what's, what is soul food really? Because I don't know. Uh, so I was just looking that up. The third answer was banana pudding. <laughs> and, okay, I'm all right. <laughs> it's going to be a good potluck. It's going to be great. I am really looking forward to that. I think it's been a good potluck, good program. Hope everybody can be there. Uh, you guys are particularly brave because you came to church this morning knowing the preacher was going to preach on the second most depressing book in the Bible. <laughs> Good on you. Because <laughs> we're going to continue this series on Job. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Job chapter 31. This is the last main speech that Joe gives before the very end of the book. Excuse me, I got to get rid of this cough drop. I thought it would be gone before I got up, but it didn't work out. So, if any of you know, we had a Bible class on Job a while back, and we went through the structure of Job. Job basically is three rounds of debate between Job and his friend. Job will make a complaint. His, one of his friends will try to answer him. They'll fail. Job will make another complaint. One of his friends will try to answer him. They'll fail. And it goes three times like that. And this is the very end of all that process. This chapter ends with the words of Job are ended. They're not quite ended. We get a, we get a reprise, but this is his final statement. And this is a very special chapter. Commentators on the Bible, not just on the book of Job, have pulled this chapter out a lot. This has been called the Gentile Ten Commandments sometimes, this chapter. And this is often, I'm not the person who named this, the chapter of the law written on the heart. Um, <clears throat> but that's what this is. Well, Paul, in Romans, Lynn read for us that passage in Paul, uh, who, who refers to that, and, and, uh, and that was a standard idea, but this is a passage that testifies to the fact that even before God gives a uh, revelation to Israel of what's right and what's wrong, even before he gives that law from Mount Sinai, uh, in the human heart, by virtue of the image of God that is in each one of us and which we represent, 
we know some things that we are required to strive to do. The law that's engraved on the human heart. And the book of Job is special in the Bible because although it's written by, we think, a Hebrew writer, these characters are all non-Hebrews. These are all supposed to be a non-Jewish people. And so this is a non-Jew testifying to the things he knows are right and wrong outside of having received the law of Moses or revelation from God like Abraham or anything else. This is the law written on the heart. I kind of went through and I highlighted the commandments. There's more than 10 commandments there. You probably noticed, but I kind of went through and highlighted the things that he says, I know this is right. And he could have made a different list. And actually earlier in the book, he says other things and the other writers say, the other speakers say other things too. These guys know things that are right and wrong without God having to tell them explicitly. Look at verse 5. If I have walked with falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit. I'm not supposed to lie, Job says, and I know I'm not supposed to uh, lie. Verse 33, look down at that. If I've concealed my sin as people do, hiding my guilt in my heart because I've so feared the crowd, so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and wouldn't, would not go outside. If I've covered up my wrongdoing, afraid I would be found out, I know I'm not supposed to do that. Once I've committed a crime, if I've not had the courage to face the consequences, I know I'm not supposed to. How does he know that? Back up in verse 29, if you're looking, if you're following along in scripture, if I've rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came on him, I've not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against their life. He said, I don't, I'm not happy even when somebody who hates me comes to sadness, comes to harm. I don't sit quietly and go, oh, pour it on. I hope worse things happen. Where did Job learn those things? What principle is behind Job knowing already in his heart, I shouldn't lie to people. I shouldn't cover up when I've made a mistake or when I've messed up. I shouldn't gloat when my enemy, somebody who dislikes me, is suffering and in pain. Where did he learn that? The fact is that Job and everyone knows in their heart that we should love other people like we love ourselves. Job knows that I hate it when people lie to me. And I need to tell the truth to other people because of that. 
I hate it when people aren't straightforward with me about when they've messed up. So I need to be straightforward with them. I hate it, and Job has personally been experiencing this, when people look with me, look at me with envy and are happy when I suffer calamity because they don't like me. I hate it when that happens, so I can't do that to them. Job is running on one of the very universal principles, and this is, this is maybe the most universal moral principle in dealing with other human beings. You need to treat other people the way you want to be treated. Confucius said this 600 years before Christ. Maybe older than that, I can't remember, but what you don't like other people to do, don't do. He said it in the negative form. Socrates said this 300 years before Christ, the same, basically, what you hate other people to do, don't do. Don't do that. Jesus said it in the positive form. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And the Bible said it in Leviticus 18. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And a little bit further down it says, love the foreigner as you love yourself, or the immigrant as you love yourself. Depends on the translation. Love the immigrant as you love yourself. It's not just your relatives, but or the people next to you, but it's even those people that are not like you that are living among you. Love them like you love yourself. In other words, and the thing is, when the Bible says that, when Jesus tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan, where somebody who has reason to hate a person still takes care of them, it's not like we go, well, I never. I didn't know that. You're supposed to love your neighbor as you love. It's not like that's the way we react. <laughs> no human reacts that way when they hear those things. We all go, yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's the reason the Bible is the Bible, because we all go, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's written on our hearts. And Job is actually, most of what he says in chapter 31 is just pulling that out. All of these principles, pretty much, except for a couple of the things he says about God and worship. These can be pulled out of that one principle. I should treat people as if I love them the way I love myself. If I wouldn't want it done to me, I shouldn't do it to them. If I would want it done to me, and if the situation were reversed, I probably have some obligation to do it to them. Almost everything follows from that in this law written on the heart, because we all know that. As soon as you know that there's such a thing as other people, you start knowing that. I should... I should treat other people the way I kind of want to be treated. You start knowing it at least that other people should treat you that way. How would you like it if somebody stepped on your foot? You hear four-year-olds saying that. And their reasoning is this. You should know enough to know to not do things to other people that you wouldn't like done to you. C.S. Lewis says, you'll hear five-year-olds on the on the playground, arguing. I gave you a bite of my sandwich yesterday. You should give me a bite today. It's only fair. 
treat other people the way you want to be treated. They're reasoning like little five-year-old moral philosophers. I mean, that's what they're doing. Everybody knows that. As soon as you know there's such a thing as other people, you start knowing that truth. It's the law written on the heart. I can't lie. I can't steal. I can't stand up and bear false witness in court because I hate it when other people do stuff like that. And so I can't do it either. Look up in verse 40. Uh, look, look up in verse 1. Sorry. There's really quite a gap between 1 and 40. Look up at verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman, he says. And he goes on to talk about that. He does that because he knows there's a God in heaven watching him. But he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Job was a rich man. He was a powerful man. He actually had political position, it looks like. And he could have, he could have taken advantage of that, and, you know, had sexual adventures if he wanted to. It's very unlikely people could have told him no if he wanted to do that. He says, nope, I didn't do it. I refused. Look down at verse 9. If my heart had been enticed by a woman, if I had lurked, we'd say snuck around <laughs> at my neighbor's door. He's talking about adultery now. Sneaking around and trying to seduce another man's wife. When I'm married, she's married. Again, Job was rich, Job was powerful. He could have gotten away with that perhaps. But he says, I know there's a God in heaven, I don't want to do that. Job takes sex and marriage with utmost seriousness. In fact, he treats them as sacred things under the eye of God in the Gentile Ten Commandments. And oh, how I wish our culture today would get that message, don't you? Because I think in our heart of hearts, everyone knows in their heart that sex and marriage are not games. I understand, you can say back to me if you want, preacher, people do think sex is a game now. Sex is a toy. You just play with it until you're tired of it. Then maybe you get married. But even then, marriage is kind of a take it or leave it sort of deal. But in our heart of hearts, we know that's not true. We know that's not something you can do. I don't know how to convey this the way the Bible does. I don't know how to convey the seriousness of this to all of us. I just know that the Bible says the sexual relationship is teaching us something about our relationship and how close God wants to be with us as his people. It's, it's, it's maybe the closest two people are able to be on the fleshly realm or the worldly realm. And it's supposed to be teaching us something. 
And to think I can just do that, well, with this person for a while, then this person for a while, oh, over here, this person for a while, is doing some kind of very deep violence to what God made me to be. It's not a toy. It's it's power. It's meant to be a power for good in my life. It's meant to be a dynamo to drive good things happening in my life. It could be dynamite and blow up my life. and We all have seen that happen. Marriage is meant to bind people together to kind of imitate that oneness that God wants to have with us, with his people. It's also meant to help take care of kids. Kids need people around them. (laughs) They need a community. And the way our culture currently treats marriage and sex, again and again and again, we see it blowing up the community that kids need. And our culture says, well, we can handle that with some other way. We'll, we'll, we'll come up with a fix of this kind or that kind. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Marriage and our sexual nature, they're not games. Job knew that. The fact is, we all know that. It's real interesting to see even in this age when most of the things I hear from pop culture, most of the things I hear or see in movies and TV tell me one message about sex, it's interesting to see that people, how violated they feel when sexual trust has been violated. How wronged they feel. Sex and marriage, I don't know how to say this any more strongly. Sex and marriage are not toys. They are not games. God wants you to take them seriously. You want to take them seriously. The best part of your heart is telling you to take them seriously. That's something Job and his friends knew because it's written in the heart. The third thing we kind of get, I had to lump these into categories, the third area that Job kind of talks about is the obligation of those with power and advantage to those who have less. Everyone knows in their heart that those with power and money have obligations to those with less. He says several things about this that kind of fall into this category. Verse 13, look at that. If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? Verse 15, there he says, Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? I'm the same as the people who I outrank. 
How can I be unjust to them? Look at verse 16. If I've denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I've kept my bread for myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but with but from my youth I reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow. If I've seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece from my sheep. Job says, I know that it is my job when I have, and people are seriously in want. I can't just look on and say, hope you luck. I have to do things. I can't just pass by. Job says that, and the fact is, the best part of your heart says that. The best part of every human heart says that. The Bible tells you that a dozen different ways. The Old Testament testifies to it. The New Testament testifies to it. But every major world philosophy and religion testifies to it too because it's written into your heart. It's written into mine. If I've got power to abuse those with less power to my own advantage, I cannot do it. In fact, it's my job to bend over backwards to be extra fair in situations of a power imbalance. We all know that. We struggle with acting that way, but we all know it. Job keeps going. Look at verse 21. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, the orphans, knowing that I had influence in court, he says, I don't do that. I could. It would be easy. I'm powerful. The orphan is powerless. No one to speak for them. I could easily, easily, totally within the law, get away with all kinds of stuff to enrich myself. But I won't. Because I believe in God and I know what's right. If those of my household have never said, who has not been filled with Job's meat, but no stranger ever had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler. I'm never going to let people be homeless around me, Job says. It's an embarrassment to me. It's a shame to me. I don't want that story to be told. Job had room, and he just closed his door. We all kind of know that it's an embarrassment to us when people are homeless. I understand there's some complications, but it is an embarrassment if people who want shelter cannot have shelter. If my land cries out against me, look at verse 38. If my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirits of his tenants. Job is an aristocrat. 
He doesn't go out and plow the fields. He has people to do that. Tenant farming, where people farm the crops and he takes the produce. They're supposed to get some of that. It would always be within his power to take more than his share, to leave them not enough to live on. He says, I don't do that again. Because I have the power, I cannot abuse the power. It's my job to bend over backward for the sake of those who have less. Job knows that, but so do you and I. It's written in our hearts. It comes to us throughout the Old Testament. If you want to just catalog the complaints of the prophets of the Old Testament against Israel and against Judah to explain why God sends invading armies against them. This is like number one or number two of the complaints that God makes through the mouths of his prophets. You keep seeking other gods, usually number one, and you keep treating the poor unjustly, number two. Everyone knows in their heart that those with power and money have obligations to those who have less. We all know that. We all know that. Everybody knows that. This brings up an odd situation in our culture. I feel like I'm being pushed as a Christian to, to say, one or the other of these first two points, you know, these, these, these two points. Either I have to talk a lot about sexual morality and not talk much about the obligations of those with power, or I have to talk a lot about the obligations of those with wealth and power and say nothing about the importance of sexual morality. I feel like I have to make a choice. The fact is, these things are both written in the human heart. The world is hungry for authentic Christians to say the truth about both. For goodness sakes, people are hungry for people to stand up in the name of the word of God and in the name of the law written in the heart and say, treat sexuality and marriage as holy things because they are. And, and if you have money, realize it's a gift and use it with generosity because it is a gift and that is a blessing. Look at verse 24. This leads to the last point I want to make. Everyone, I claim, Paul claims too, but I claim, everyone knows in their heart that nothing inside creation is worthy of worship. Job testifies to that. Nothing inside creation is worthy of worship. If I put my trust in gold and said of pure gold, you are my security, 
for I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands have gained. Job says, if I did that, I'd be unworthy. If I've said, oh, because I'm wealthy, now I'm safe. Now this is what my life is all about. He says, that's false. That's foolish to think my wealth is going to keep me safe. And Job's an obvious example of that. His wealth, by the time he was saying this, had all been taken away. It was all gone. I can't worship or make my life all about money. If I make money my number one, my God, it will turn on me. It's not worthy of that place in my heart. Verse 26, if I have regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them the kiss of homage. He's talking about ancient worship practices. The sun is truly magnificent. It's amazing. The Egyptians worshiped the sun and you can understand why that was tempting. It warms the earth. It causes the crops to grow. You can see why the moon, with its enormous beauty, attracted people to worship. And in fear and in ignorance, people thought, yes, that's so much higher than us. It's worthy. That's what we'll devote ourselves to. But in our heart of hearts, we know that can't be right. Nothing in creation is worthy of our worship when our minds keep asking, yeah, but made all this. That's what I really want to have a connection to. That's what's truly worth. Where did the sun come from? Where did the who? What hand made the moon? What hand was able to stretch out these stars and what mind was able to put all of this in order? That's what I want to be connected to. That's the only thing worthy of worship. Job says, I want the creator, the maker of heaven and earth. And I won't be satisfied no matter what people around me say until I have a connection with him and an answer from him. We're going to talk next week or the week after about Job's struggle with God. Job's mad at God in this book. Whatever you've heard about his patience. He's angry with God. But he never gives up on God. He says, I want God. I want this connection. Nothing less than God will do. And in your heart of hearts, if you're a human being, whether you've never heard the Bible or whether you've heard it your whole life, there is a part of you that knows that's true. I know it's true. Nothing less than God will do. Anything else that's whispering in your ear saying to you, if you can just get a little bit more of me, it'll be enough. Anything that's telling you that is lying. Nothing less than God will do. It's carved 
into your heart. It's engraved into your heart. Nothing less than God will do. Let's pray. Dear God, God, teach us today. Teach us tomorrow. Teach us this week and this year to love you. God, we want to yield our hearts more and more to you. God, we want to live more and more in love with you. We receive your love. God, help us to receive it more fully and more openly. God, we want to be window panes showing your love into us and out through us into the world. God, make us those instruments of your love. These things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.